0: Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of Venture Capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and joining us today is Apurva Mehta, who is the co-founding partner of Summit Peak, an emerging manager-focused investor that specializes in both fund investments and co-investing. Purvis started investing in venture funds nearly a decade ago at Cook's Children, with a specific focus on the discovery of new and interesting venture managers. In this episode, we cover how Summit Peak evaluates GPs, how to think about the fund-to-fund model, what they think are the characteristics necessary for persistence of returns, and the future of the emerging manager industry. Now without any delay, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Perva, thanks for being on the show. Great to have you here. Thank you, Samir. It's great to be on. So let's get right into this. You have been investing in venture funds and direct companies for a while. But in 2000, I think right after the global financial crisis, you started at Cook, spun up their venture program. And what struck me at the time was that instead of focusing on just legacy names, you were investing in a lot of emerging managers. Why did you take that approach, and what did you see as the opportunity?
1: I started at Cook in 2011, um, and I joined uh, my partner today, Patrick, as, as deputy CIO. We sat back and thought about venture investing. You know, even then, in 2011 and 12, the you know the quote unquote brand name firms and top tier firms, Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, um, you know, Founders Fund, Benchmark. You know, have been been closed to new investors for for some time. Um, we had the view that we wanted to access innovation, that tech innovation, and we took the approach to say, you know, a lot of these firms, the brand name ones, have moved, up, you know, are investing further downstream but as their fund sizes have grown. You know, they're no longer writing checks at you know this, the seed stage um, or as large checks or or as you know as many checks and we felt that there was a void that was being created you know this was called a decade ago in that space um you know and that void was at least our view was being filled with micro vcs um so you know it's funny enough that you know today uh, the new term you know is it's called solo capitalist but our our view then was micro vcs which you know is is a solo gp that's spinning out of a brand name firm or coming out of a uh, a company like Google or Facebook, um, you know so call it an operator turned investor or an investor leaving a big firm and creating a, you know a new firm, we felt that that segment of the market had the ability to capture what was a void that was created when you know firms just continued to get bigger and and what that meant was you could own a meaningful percentage of a company at a more attractive valuation and you know and ultimately truly get paid for that illiquidity premium that people are looking for in venture. Um, so that, you know, that was the genesis of, of focusing on you know, emerging managers or what we like to call you know, the next generation um, of, of VCs. And that
0: generation has grown substantially over the last decade, which uh, you know, leads me to thinking about you launching Summit Peak a fund of funds focused on some of these emerging managers and maybe some of these emerged managers can you tell us a little bit about what Summit Peak does?
1: Yeah, we started Summit Peak in the summer of eighteen um, you know our goal was giving our partners access to venture capital um you know I think you know as you know, access and venture is everything, you know it's a little bit more clear what access looks like um you know when you're looking at brand name firms, but when you're speaking about the early stage, you know as you said the number has swelled, i think you know you're by your own account probably to over 1000 you know micro vcs which you know in 2010 was 200 or so and so so we we started the firm to you know to to give partners access to early stage venture a place that we've been navigating for the last 10 years um, so our portfolio is made up 70% of investments are into funds you know those funds generally we've been backing now for the last decade um, started out as fun ones, maybe a fun two, but you know, generally speaking, we were, you know, we we're in most of these as, as a fun one, um, and then the other thirty percent of the portfolio is is directs or co um, meaning we are coming into portfolio companies from our underlying funds. You know, at, at what we like to call the inflection point of growth. So, you know, Series B, Series C, roughly around there. The company has market validation, it has a product, Revenues is accelerating. Um, you know, you're still coming in at an attractive valuation where we think you can earn you know, a, a, a you know, multiple of 5x plus. And so that's 30% of our portfolio.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because the fund-to-fund business, I think, has evolved and morphed. You know, 20, 25 years ago when we started to see the growth of fund of funds most were largely focused just on fund investing, very little co-investing. And the main sell for these fund of funds was selling access into these top tier firms. I always like to go behind the scenes a little bit and maybe peek behind the curtain in terms of how you start up a fund of funds. So you're in this case not necessarily selling access to Sequoia and Teresa and Benchmark. You're acting as a discovery engine into some of the best potential alpha generators, and you're doing co invest direct. How was your first fundraise? What was the positioning, and what type of LPs did you go after?
1: when we started this business um, you know we did we did what most people do which is you know you look at a track record and you say our oh, track record looks great you know we managed x amount of capital so we should easily be able to manage you know uh, a portfolio you know similar to that and you put a, you know you put a target on a presentation and and you know and say, what's what's not to like about this and uh we quickly realized how hard marketing is um but that being said our fund one capital, when you look at it, um, you know, first of all, 80% of it came from people we've known for the past decade. So both me and my partner, we were, you know, well-traveled, well-networked, you know, we had a great reputation in, in the endowment space, um, you know, which from a fundraising perspective, you know, you're right. We weren't selling access to, you know, the the brand name firms, but we were selling access to a portfolio. A that was fully baked. Um, you know, our fun one was not a blind pool, which you know that's that was in and of itself that made marketing a little bit easier. And in addition to it not being a blind pool, it was it was selling that exactly what you described, which is you know this is that next generation, and we've been working with these GPs you know for a very long time, and we believe they have the very best access to deal flow. They're backing exceptional founders um, at the seed stage and. These GPs are, are, you know, are going to generate, you know, as I said earlier, that illiquidity premium that people really are looking for in venture. So, you know, the story was easier for sure because our partners came to us. You know, there were there were, you know, fellow LPs of ours. You know, we would share ideas with with all of these partners, and it made it it made the marketing conversation easier. They've, you know, they've traveled with us. They understand that we're thinking about portfolio construction and sizing and. And we had a portfolio that spoke to it. The fact that it was a blind pool also, you know, helped. Um, But you're right; it was it was selling access more to the asset class, which was if you believe venture is an asset class that's going to generate returns, um, attractive returns, and you know, all data points to early stage being you know one of the most attractive segments. to That well, this is a portfolio that's going to be able to to give you the you know access to returns. So I think that's how we were selling the asset class, not early stage versus brand name. It was, it was the asset class.
0: How long was the fundraise from start to finish?
1: I mean, 18, 18 months. I mean, we did the lion's share of it in 12. So we started in, you know, our first close was up to you know, these, these numbers get etched in your memory. Uh, our, our lawyers joke that, you know, we did more closes than any GP they've ever worked with. So I think we had 12 closings, uh, but so first, first close was October of 18 and, you know, the final, final close was, you know, April 1st, 2020. So we officially finished uh, earlier this year.
0: The other thing I found fascinating, correct me if I'm wrong on this account, but I think that you had invested a lot of that fund before you fully closed the fund. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So um, in June of 18, three days after we incorporated the business, uh, one of our GPs said, um, hey, I have $5 million left of exposure to to my fund. You know, not really raising it, but if you want it, it's going to make you look great. And, you know, so it started with that. Uh, So we committed $5 million. We had yet to do a first close. All we had was, you know, an LLC, a GP and an LP. And subsequently, the summer of 18, our entire portfolio of, you know, a dozen GPs were raising capital. And, you know, again, to show access, hey, you know, we have access to all these gps we're going to be on the lp advisory board you know for all of these gps we have to commit capital and so you know by october 2nd which was our first close uh, we had deployed close to 87 million dollars
0: wow so i'm sure that brought together a period of very sleepless nights and some anxiety moving to that model though so selling access to the asset category and acting as a discovery engine, I think is really interesting into these high alpha managers. I'd suspect that you have a particular investment framework that you use to evaluate managers, given that there isn't 200, but there's maybe 1,200 and growing by the day. What is that framework that you use to evaluate potential managers for the portfolio?
1: Today, it's, it's easy to see how you know the 15 GPs that are in you know, our current portfolio, how they neatly all fit into this puzzle. Um, when we started, it wasn't so obvious. We were looking for for the next next generation, and we were trying to dissect uh, Silicon Valley or U.S. venture deal flow and understand you know what makes these GPs unique, what what gives them the ability to find those deals, how do they win those deals? You know, today it it's a very you know neat framework that we can think about it in, which is anytime we meet a new GP, we're thinking about you know, are they an entrepreneur turned investor? So, you know, do they fit into, you know, what we call the operator model? Are they um, a network driven investor? So they have, you know, unique and differentiated access to some network. That could be because they're a Stanford alum, you know, they, you know, former editors of um, the Stanford Review. And so that's where they're sourcing Geoflow because it's, you know, it's its own little cult from, you know Peter Thiel to David Sachs and then you know one of our GPs Adam Ross who was the third editor, and it you know they share deal flow amongst each other as this you know cohort of people that have been you know editors of the Stanford Review. So we the network driven approach is is what network do they represent and do we think that that's a source an area of deal flow? Are they a sector specific fund? Do we want more concentrated exposure to that sector? Do we think that over the next you know, 20 years, there's going to be tailwinds in that sector. And so, you know, versus some of the generalists, we want to, you know, double down on enterprise or AI, or, you know, could be deep tech or hard, you know, or hardware. So is it a sector specific fund or not? And, and, and what is their expertise in that space? Um, You know, which is going to affect outcomes? You know, those are some of some of the things that we, you know, we think about, uh, or, and then geographic specific as well. So, you know, today when we meet a new GP or a prospective new GP, it is, you know, there is an existing puzzle and it's looking at how does this new potential manager fit into the puzzle that we already have? Are they, you know, additive because we don't have exposure to this network and we think that this network, you know, is going to, you know, be a, a great source of deal flow or if you look at companies, we think about, you know, what used to be the PayPal mafia or what still is the PayPal mafia, but now you have companies that are exiting and entrepreneurs that have liquidity and want to go build the next, you know, the next Facebook, the next Uber, the next Airbnb, the next, you know, you know, insert your company, you know, Stripe is an example where we backed a a GP that was an early employee out of Stripe um, and, you know, and has differentiated access to, the Collison brothers, and any entrepreneur that's going to come out of Stripe. So we think about that framework of, you know, it needs to be a meaningful company um, that we think is is going to be a future generator of entrepreneurs and, and, and innovation. And when you look at
0: these prospective managers, and you've mentioned the framework of their network, you know, is it sector or regional focus, and then, you know, the operator model Is there any force ranking to the importance in your mind of those three things? Is it possible for a manager to be really strong in one and still be investable in your mind?
1: They can certainly be strong in one. Um, I think network is one of the ones that is a big driver for us. Um, You know, the operator model we like, um, and that's a little bit different generally because you're not necessarily taking somebody that's a professional investor or they're not yet a professional investor. It could be they're still at a company today, and they're using their role at that company um in a good way to be able to be in the center of deal flow um and entrepreneurs want their backing because they've been and sat across the other side of the table. They understand what it's like to you know go through hiring and firing and fundraising and so you know, network is one of the most important, uh, you know, that is probably the one that we put the most relevance to. um, But it doesn't necessarily need to be every aspect of the framework that needs to be met. It's just it's really showing what the value add with within any one of those areas is. So if you were to just think about sector, um, you know, why should real estate tech be in this portfolio and understanding when we hear when when a fund pitches, us it's you know truly understanding what this sector means do we get exposure from the generalist network based folks that we have already in the portfolio or do we think that it is such a big sector or it's going to be such a big sector with so much innovation that we need to you know add another line item in the portfolio and and ultimately that's the tough decision which is you know we run a very concentrated portfolio i mean It's um, eight of our names represent the majority of our allocation. And then we have, you know, another seven today that we, you know, we call scouts, which are new GPs that, you know, we're, you know, we're dipping our toe in the water to see if it, you know, graduates to a core allocation. So when we meet a new GP, the, you know, the bar is based on, on this framework.
0: Yeah. So speaking about that model, which is concentrated, which leads me to believe that adding a new name has a very, very high bar to invest and allocate into. Moving to that first meeting, when you are talking to a GP for the very first time, you mentioned some of the framework that you use from a very tangible standpoint to evaluate them. What are some of the things that you're looking at from an intangible standpoint when you're meeting a single GP or whether it's maybe in a case where it's a partnership?
1: the biggest thing is, is that, you know, that drive and hustle, you can see it from the first call. I mean, now on now over zoom, um, you can see it from the first call of what they're going after and what their what their drive is, we try to back that up in a tangible, tangible way with founder reference calls. Um, that is, you know, one of the things that we spend the most amount of time on from a diligence perspective. But, you know, taking a step back, we we take meetings with as many new GPs as we can possible. I mean, it just, you know, that's what our investors pay us to do. You know, we need just, you know, we believe in innovation, which means we need to continually be iterating our thought process and not say that this is a static portfolio, and it's never going to change. Um, so we're continually meeting as many funds as possible. But, you know, all of that being said, we get a lot of inbound from our existing GPs, not a lot. I mean, it's, let's let's just say it's a handful a year. So three to four new GPs a year come to us from our existing portfolio. It's just a GP that says, we really like these guys. Um, we worked with them on this deal, you know, any chance you want an introduction. And, you know, that has been the greatest source of GP deal flow, um, which is, you know, coming from our existing network, which that immediately moves them a little bit, you know, um, just higher, I guess, on, on the totem pole, totem pole from a respect perspective. If, if one of our GPs who, you know, the, the people that are in our portfolio we have been working with for close to a decade, we've been to weddings, baby showers. I mean, they, you know, they manage capital for us, but they're also, you know, they're friends, they're family. And so when they recommend somebody, we, you know, we take it seriously. That definitely, you know, helps from the first stage of diligence um but whether it comes from a network or not um you know i would say the founder reference calls is what helps make something intangible which is what is their drive and hustle and how are they going to win that deal flow the founder reference calls make that you know that intangible piece tangible
0: i heard in, in another interview that you do a lot of founder calls and i think in some cases it's up to 50 calls where Either it's a GP list that they provide you or it's off list where you're, you know, cold outreaching to people. But I'm always curious, what is it that you want to hear from those founders consistently that make you say, this person has that grit and hustle versus, you know, it's just the founder providing a nice endorsement for a GP, but doesn't really get to the core of what you care about?
1: We take it with a grain of salt because, you know, I think no one wants to step on anyone's toes. And if. If you are a GP that's funded a company, why would a company ever say anything you know bad about you? But after doing these for so many years, there is you know, hey, they were a great partner, or here's how they unlocked value for us, and and I think that the the second piece, um, you know, how they unlocked value, why I'd take capital from them again, why I let them lead my round when I had ten term sheets, that's what we're listening for, and it's. Those answers that are going to drive whether a GP's process is repeatable, meaning can they win that deal flow over and over and over again? Um, and so when we do these founder reference calls, we you know we often find a pattern of, you know, they some GPs are great at sure, they write a you know, nice check and they take 10% ownership, but they're great at um, you know, helping grow the product because they are they have product expertise. So that means you know, revenue introductions. Um, some some GPs are, you know, great at CEO coaching. And, you know, that, you know, one of our GPs describes, uh, you know, he gave us an analogy of talking to a founder and say, you know, saying to a founder is, you know, do you want to be rich? Or do you want to be a king? You know, being a king, you, you can be rich, but, you know, but not necessarily be king, which is effectively to say, they're not not all CEOs are meant to be in the position forever which, you know, this GP specifically, he'll do CEO coaching and and help the company through what might be a transitionary period where, you know, the CEO needs to move to a chairman role and they bring somebody else in. So we're looking for how our GPs add value to make their process repeatable. And, you know, that's what we get out of those founder reference calls. You
0: know, it's, it's funny that you say that, because I, I went through the Kaufman Fellowship, and we always talk about investors and what is their zone of genius or their special power that they have that is unique to them and repeatable across many, many different type of companies. And it sounds like that's what you're really, really looking for when you're having these conversations.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's the most enjoyable piece. I mean, you really get to know a GP that way, um, and it's just the, I'm, I'm assuming You know, the founder business is very lonely. And when they're able to open up and tell you, you know, in the most difficult time, they helped bridge us to, you know, to our series A or, again, every GP of ours has a unique skill set. And and I think that's what we look for, which is what is that, you you know, besides access to deals, there are some GPs that just might have access, but it's what's that unique skill set that's going to, you know, that has founders raving about them.
0: Well, we'll go into diligence for a minute. For a lot of GPs, raising money is something they're doing for the first time, at least from LPs. And the diligence process is fairly esoteric and oftentimes completely opaque to them. At what point are you doing this type of diligence where you're calling founders, maybe calling other GPs? Is this after a number of meetings? What does that typically look like for you?
1: The funds that we're investing in today... Because they come highly recommended, you know they are to some extent. If you're not in the first close, you know you you potentially may get shut out, um, and they are you know harder to access. Which means when it hits our desk, we have to move quickly. So, you know our our, our diligence process can take as little as two weeks to as much as a month. Um, you know I would say one of our strengths both from Being at the endowment to being here is our transparency, which, you know, when we were at the endowment, we had full discretion over our investment portfolio, which gave us the ability to move quickly. Um, And it's no different at Summit Peak, if anything, you know, even more transparent, um, and we can, you know, we can move fast. Um, But it's the transparency that we give people. So it is getting off that first call and saying, you know, right away, this is a fit, this is how much we'd like to do. And this is how much time we're going to need to do our work, um, you know, and does that work? And, and so we're just we're very fast about at least that initial gut decision, if something doesn't check out, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to spin our wheels. And, you know, we'll, you know, we'll cut and we'll be out. But so that decision process can range, um, you know, really, it's GP dependent on how much time, we have, um, you know, based on based on the fund, um, you know, and and where it's coming from, and and how heavily sought after it is. Before we do that first call, though, a lot of stuff has taken place. So we've checked our network. Um, you know, it's a it's in you know probably not oftenly used tool, but even you know going back, some of the best deals we've done, we used LinkedIn. I mean, we see how we're connected to somebody one of the newest GPs in our portfolio, I listened to on a podcast, I read an article about, and I could have emailed cold. But I asked, you know, I looked on LinkedIn, and one of our GPs was connected. And the introduction made was that one of my one of my best LPs would love to have a conversation with you. And so that was, you know, that's how the, the, the first conversation started. The point is, is before that first meeting, if it's something that's interesting, we're doing a lot of back channel and you know and channel checking on the gp themselves the founder reference calls they'll start immediately you know once we make that decision um which that decision you know like i said can be within a week you know from a gut check if it's right for our portfolio you know we're gonna start immediately so you know, like i said it, it is it is one of our i think it's one of our strengths which is our transparency and our ability to move quickly and i think you know that's why GPs enjoy working with us because we're just different than a traditional LP, whether that's a family office or an endowment. We just don't have red tape or politics to deal with. I
0: like the pre diligence aspect and notion of what you do. It it does speed up the process. And we've heard stories where some institutional LPs want to meet somebody and get to know them over several years before even getting to a decision point. The other aspect of institutional investing is if you do your job right, you will continue to back these managers for their success at funds over and over and over again. And that speaks to persistence on return profiles. And we've seen that in venture. We've certainly seen it with some of the first-generation funds where they seem to build this constant persistent returns based on brand, based on the talent that they are able to acquire. What do you see that with respect to emerging managers are there any characteristics in your mind that really separate those that can sustain performance versus those that may have one hit in their portfolio and then fizzle out?
1: It's a few things. Um, I, I think the core to it is consistency of investment strategy. We, we spend a lot of time in our initial underwriting with a GP of just understanding how they think of their you know, their fund um, and their firm as a business and what it looks like, you know, short-term, medium-term, long-term, and, you know, what market they're going after and, and how that's gonna grow over time or how their business grows over time, and are they still able to capture that? And so the funds where we see, you know, that persistence of returns, we're open to managers, you know, investing outside of their box, but there's been a consistency of, you know, thoughtfulness around fund size growth and um, thoughtfulness around, you know, adding a GP. I mean, most of our funds today are single GPs, but when somebody does add them, it's not done overnight. It's you know, it is bringing somebody on as a principal or or testing the waters first with them and then bringing them on as a full partner. We keep an eye on that, you know, that fund size growth, um, you know, and it's, again, it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a set number um, that a fund size needs to be. Um, I'm, I'm sure, as you know, you know, the larger the funds get, you know, math starts stacking against you. But, you know, we try to partner with our GPs to you know really understand what they're going after and and how they can make that math work. But we truly believe I mean, the funds that have fallen out of our portfolio have been because of, you know, a deviation from investment strategy and investment strategy. you know, means a a number of things. It, It doesn't just mean fund size growth, it means adding sectors where you don't have expertise, adding multiple products to a firm where, you know, it takes your time and attention away from, you know, the core of what you should be doing. We keep a keep a magnifying glass on that investment strategy piece. And we think that that's what, ultimately drives that consistency of returns well embedded into that answer that
0: you just gave you mentioned that the bulk of your portfolio is solo capital is single sole gps which more and more people have become comfortable as more have come to market and we've seen performance from that first and second generation how do you weigh that against some that say that you know with a single person are you really getting diversity of thought are there limitations to the solo model
1: there's certainly limitations, um, you know, if there's, there's probably, you know, pros and cons, the easiest thing to do as we built this portfolio now and, and still today, is, you know, if you have two GPs coming together, and they worked together for the last decade at the same place, it's a different story, um, you know, and, and as you suggest, you have diversity of thought with those two GPs, and they're going to bring different skill sets to the table. Potentially different sector expertise to the table, um, you know. I, I think that's a different story. When we see multiple GPs come together from different firms, you know, it, it becomes difficult to underwrite the business risk. Um, so when we think about, you know, a solo GP you know, it's a small fund, um, generally, or, you know, and, and it eventually might grow into a larger fund, you're only underwriting one person, you're underwriting that one person's track record and doing founder reference calls for that one person. Um, you know, ultimately, if you're, if they're bringing another partner to the table, there's the dynamic of how do they work together? How is investment decision being done? You know, I, as I say this, I realize that, you know, I, I'm a dual GP firm. And, uh, you know, in a 50-50 partnership. But but at the same time, you know, my partner and I have worked together for, for 10 years. And so, you know, it's a little bit, it is two people that are coming together from the same organization. But I see your point on, you know, diversity of thought. And there's certainly risk of a solo GP, whether key man or otherwise. Um, every LPA and, you know, uh, not PPM, but every LPA has has protections in place for, you know, for LPs. Um, so they, you know, so that our DPs, you know, color within the lines, or making sure they color within the lines. Um, so we, we worry less about the key person risk and more about how you underwrite. There's when you're backing a fun one, there are so many variables to underwrite, and if we can take one off the table or make some of those variables easier, then you know it just makes our job easier for backing that fun one.
0: Speaking of the different variables, you know we spent most of this conversation talking about investment thesis you know, what that special power of that GP is. But what about the actual infrastructure of the firm? A lot of first time funds are outsourcing many of their service providers, whether that's fund accounting, audit tax, and certainly audit tax is almost in every case. How do you look at it from the perspective of have they set up the firm in a way that's institutional? Are you looking at those type of things?
1: I do. Uh, you know, it's a funny word, again, now, now being on this side of the business, meaning, you know, in, in addition to investing capital, raising capital, you know, people ask us those same questions of, you know, is it institutional, you know, having gone through it, um, having a third party administrator is, you know, is phenomenal. I mean, they, they are, you know, we have four CPAs working on our account at all times. And that, you know, to bring that in-house is this cost prohibitive. We view if you're new to venture and the asset class, then you know it 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 will be a hard pill to swallow. Who is you know, who is Aduro Advisors? I've never heard of them, or who is Frank Reimerman? You know, I've never heard of them. You know, if you've spent enough time in the space, you know, they're household names and um and they make business seamless. Um so we look for certain service providers, we understand at the size that new funds are raising, you know, call it on the small end of 50 to even 150 million. It is a smart thing to do. You know, we tell our investors, uh, you want us focusing on, you know, on deal making and fundraising, really nothing else. And, And the less time we spend on fundraising, we're spending on deal making. And so everything else is taken care of by somebody, you know, do we have to Check and audit, sure, but, you know, and review it, absolutely, but it is better that it is in the hands of four CPAs as opposed to us, you know, being on a shoestring budget and, you know, and potentially bringing somebody, you know, bringing somebody in and having that as part of our process. So we're big fans of of the outsource model because it, you know, it leaves GPs, you know, with the time for their, you know, what their expertise is.
0: And i assume that you see a common set of providers that you get very comfortable that GPs are using. But post-investment, I always think about the role of LP advisory committees or LPACs. And for a lot of people that are taking institutional money for the first time, they're forming these LPACs for the first time. Can you describe exactly what is the role of an LPAC? What does a healthy LPAC look like? And then tangentially, how should GPs look to interact with an LPAC on a ongoing basis,
1: we sit on about a dozen LPACs. Um, when we started, you know, raising our first fund, we thought of it as this is a great marketing tool. You know, to say we sit on the LPAC and we're an important investor. Over the years, we've realized, you know, it is a nice to have but not must have. There isn't very much that you know that occurs at the LPAC. Um, now, that being said there is a role of the LPAC, you know, it is providing a fiduciary responsibility and being a voice for the other LPs. And we are, you know, as, as a member of a dozen LPACs, we are happy to do that. You know, again, it, it's more of a check the box um, for some LPs, what our role has been and, you know, the ones that are, you know, uh, the most enjoyable, it, it's really keeping a GP in check when something does that, that is not outlined in the LPA is being done. And so, you know, an example could be, you know, we hear from one of our fund LPACs very, very infrequently. And, and that infrequently is because they're investing by their LPA and they're doing everything that they should be doing. You know, there's a valuation policy which your, you know, your auditors and your, you know, your administrators are following. So an LPAC doesn't necessarily need to be reviewing valuations. But the time when an LPAC does get involved, and in this case, it was a company that, you know, this GP invests at the seed stage. They're generally, you know, they're investing at the seed stage under a certain valuation or a certain amount of ownership. And um, this company was going to be a Series A, and so came to the LPAC and said, you know, I don't have money in my opportunity fund, which would have been the place where I do a Series A it's a blank check founder, meaning, you know, he would back him uh, without knowing what he's building, but he knows what he's building. And, you know, it should, you know, I would put it in the seed fund, but, you know, I'd, I'd like your vote, basically, should it go into the seed fund? Um, and, you know, and, and it has the ability to be, you know, a fund returning outcome. That was the role of the LPAC, which is, you know, does he spin up an SPV for this deal and and do it outside the fund? Because it doesn't necessarily, you know, check the seed funds mandate, or you know, do do you do it in the you know in the main fund, and so you know, so that's where an LPAC gets involved. Um, You know, we we get involved when it comes to on an annual basis. One of our GPS holds an LPAC meeting, and we discuss valuations and we discuss you know the the audit. Um, You know, that's a little bit more formal. Unfortunately, there is no set industry standard. Let's put it that way. I, I you know it I, I, I suppose it would be nice if if there uh whether we're on them or not, if there was an industry standard and you know maybe that's what Ilpa is for, um, you know, which is setting the industry standard. But I'm sure as you know, you know, venture GPs, you know, march to the beat of their own drum. And so I don't I don't know if there's there's going to necessarily be an industry standard on on the role of LPAC. But
0: it sounds like in an ideal case there's mutual benefit of having LPEX and having the right type of LPs and in helping to govern the fund and bring value to um, decision making in certain cases. I want to move to my final question, actually, and this is more broader in where we are in the emerging market. We've talked about the growth over the last 10 years. I've made the statement publicly that I don't think it's a transient one. I think that emerging managers continue to come to market for a variety of reasons. Do you agree with that? Or, and how do you see the next few years? I do believe
1: the pace of merging managers is going to continue to accelerate. I, I mean, the more founders that exit companies and create liquidity and, you know, and decide, some are going to go and found companies and others are going to go and say, you know, I want to be a full-time investor. And you know, I've built X into a $100 billion business. So I understand product. I understand hiring talent. And so I can see it. And I, you know, I understand, you know, I'll be able to back founders. So I think, you know, if we've seen, you know, five or six x growth over the last decade, we're going to see, you know, double that, you know, in in a shorter period of time. So it's going to become more crowded doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, um, the the quality is not going to be there. But it just it it certainly is going to, you know, I, I think that emerging manager segment is going to continue to accelerate the, and the reason for that is is you know because of that that value add to an entrepreneur at the seed stage and um and if someone is able to show that um you know that space they're writing that first check and um it it is a you know an important and pivotal part of you know of the venture ecosystem so as i said i, I think it's it's going to become more crowded which means you know, harder to differentiate amongst managers, but, um, but I do see it as an important role to, to capturing venture deal flow so much so that, you know, I'm sure as you've seen in lots of venture decks, you know, you see brand name firms backing emerging managers, meaning, you know, partner, you know, that's, that's the marketing no-no, which I I don't, I don't necessarily, it's, it's no secret that partners of, you know, brand name firms are writing hundred thousand dollar checks, and so you know when you see it on a deck, it's uh, it's a little bit like uh, you know, yeah, sure, we've seen it on every deck, so it it, it has less meaning today than it once did, I believe. Um, but all that's to say that we believe it's a source of deal flow for for a lot of these GPs.
0: I agree 100%. And I do see that exponential growth happen. And some firms, of course, won't make it to a fund two or fund three. And I think that's totally fine. I think we're going to see much more diversity of thought and different type of managers coming to market, which I think is a really good thing. And you're right that a lot of the bigger firms have invested and have created these scout funds, you know, throughout the universe. And you and I both see that. I want to move to our final segment, which we call Heat Check, and it's really three questions that I ask you rapid fire. And the first question I have for you, Apurva, is what is the biggest career mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: This is easy, but committing close to $90 million without, without raising any capital. You know, it's a, a joke, but you know, we wouldn't have been able to raise a fund without it. But I mean, it is, it, it, and it created the fire and the hustle. Um, to go raise the, the the capital. Word of advice: Don't deploy capital. Uh, use a credit time, credit line. Pull down a credit line, and then go try to raise capital afterward. It makes for for difficult, very very difficult marketing conversations. You know, but learned a ton from it. Learned uh, how difficult it is to market. um You know, I, I think the entire last two years were just have been a great learning experience of, you know, not just being an LP. I, i'll put it this way you know we we now have another thing to connect with with gps so we used to just be an lp right and we write a check and we sit on an lpac and now we talk to gps and you know as successful or as wildly successful as some of them are we can you know commiserate about the process of a direct deal or a co-investment or fundraising or lps so you know, the last two years and, you know, that marketing mistake and that, you know, it, it's taught us a lot and and it gives us another, you know, level to connect with our GPs with.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's the same for GPs with founders, especially with all the emerging managers going through fundraising purgatory and hell for 18 to 24 months and talking to the founders about it. So I totally agree. And I feel with this next question, I'm ragging on you a little bit. I always talk about people's anti portfolios and with the fund of funds, you know, I'm really looking at is there a fund manager that you wish you had invested in that you saw that you passed on? And if so, who is that and, and why?
1: There is one that we did recently that we passed on in our endowment days. Um so you know, I guess that's that's one that I, I wish we would have gotten to earlier, but I'm sure as you know, when you're running any portfolio, you start to get bloated, um, which is you know, we were running the venture portfolio. We we're running the endowment, and the venture portfolio within it, you know, starts to get bloated with GP names, um, and everything looks bright and shiny, and you know, is, is the bright and shiny new toy. And and so, at at a certain point, you know, you have to start saying no, and it's uh, and you just you run out of capital to commit. So um, around uh, so Any Ventures, we we recently invested with them um, out of our fund too we had passed on them and, and, and our entire interaction over email as of recent, or, you know, over the course of this year, um, all goes back to our interaction from, from, you know, our endowment days. And so they, you know, I, li- I looked through the chain actually, and it was, we were transparent. We said exactly, you know, we don't think this is interesting, but, you know, we're, we're pretty full up on our venture allocation right now. And so we passed on their fund too. Um, and I mean, and they've just, you know, they've been on fire. And so um, we're happy to be part of it now. Um, But you know, that's one that should have done earlier, better
0: late than never. In some cases, last part of this segment is the single piece of advice you'd give to an emerging manager,
1: detailed thoughts on portfolio construction, we all too often find GPs that, you know, it, it is clearly articulating your strategy, you know, what what makes you good, what gives you your edge in terms of finding and winning deal flow. Um, So it's clearly articulating that in your deck. But then in addition to that, how do you think about portfolio construction? Because all too often, to your point, you know, some of these funds might not make it past a fund one or fund two. And it's because of a lack of discipline around just thinking about portfolio construction, we understand that not everything is going to go right in a fund one, you're going to you know, you're going to outsize things and it's going to work in your favor. You're going to undersize things and it's not going to work in your favor. Um, and so, you know, fun one, people are learning with our capital, at least if you put some thought around portfolio construction and you know how to articulate it, you can go back and then point to, you know, what you did right, what you did wrong and how you're going to improve for the next fund.
0: Yeah. Well, fortunately, there's a lot of content out there from um, portfolio construction nerds like myself. So hopefully that's not too much of the case on a go forward basis, but Apurva, I really appreciate you being on the show. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Samira. This was great. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Apurva and Summit Peak, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes of the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released.